Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Former 1% Motorcycle Club member, published author turned social worker. Justin Mooch Delorento, welcome to the Stick Up Brother. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. I'm excited to come on. Hey, tell me about, you know, your upbringing and where it all started for you. Um, so I come from um, just a middle-class Italian family out here in the United States from a, a, the capital of Oregon, Salem. And I, my most of my family are like school teachers and sports coaches. So, you know, I really love and caring family, a lot of aunts and uncles, um, that type of traditional Italian family where we do, you know, Sunday dinner or Sundays had, you know, family dinners all the time and then all the birthdays and all that stuff. So, um, you know, uh, upbringing was really good. I was really cared for. And then, you know, one of the caveats that too, is I'm an an identical twin brother. So no matter where we went, like family vacations or trips or whatever, I always had somebody with me. So that was always really cool. And I think that carried with me quite a bit through my life as well as always having someone there with me through these different experiences. That's it's important, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk further about it. But you know, by the sounds of it, you're really validated at home from a young per, uh, from a young age. Would it be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of one of the you know misconceptions about people that get into you know gang life or club life or stuff like that is that they're searching for family. And I know obviously there's people out there that are for sure, but that just wasn't the case with me. I mean, I had everything I needed as far as that was concerned at home. Yeah, let's let's talk about school. How was school and 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 that sort of stuff for you? Um, not bad, you know, grade school and stuff. I played all the sports there was since my family were like sports coaches and stuff. You know, I, I pretty much played all the different sports, really got into wrestling pretty early on. And so that's what I stuck with through junior high and high school. I was on a bunch of different mat clubs, wrestled quite a bit. So I played, I played, you know, I, I stayed pretty active with sports and, um, you know, different athletic stuff. And I would say, you know, because of it was in sports teams and stuff, I kind of always had friends. It was relatively popular in high school. I got into like the punk rocks and skinhead scene and stuff. And so yeah. I, you know, I was kind of the nerd at school for that stuff early on. Um, but, you know, that was that was like maybe freshman, sophomore year. And then I started kind of making more friends and starting to build a reputation for myself. And honestly, that's probably when I started getting in trouble, too, because I was sort of getting a reputation for fighting quite a bit. And yeah. I noticed that, you know, instead of getting picked on, people were, were either fearing me or respecting me, one or the other. And, and so I really kind of jumped into that. And so I was really getting in a lot of trouble in high school. But yeah. I did well, like with grades and everything like, you know, I, I was successful in school and I did well. Um, and I, now I have a master's degree, um, but I didn't go back to to college until about until I was like 27 or 28 years old. So after high school, I didn't jump straight to college. I, I really like to backtrack and find out why kids get into trouble. Statistically, you got you're validated at home. And one of the big stats here in Australia is that that kids that are involved in sports and team sports and their parents and their family are involved in it with them drops their chances by about 30 or 40 percent of ever getting in trouble. Because they're validated, Absolutely. they're supported, and that sort of stuff, you know. Talk about, let's talk about when you started to get into trouble. You started by fighting and that sort of thing. What was going on for you there? Well, um, and just to kind of backtrack to what you said there, you know, now I'm a, I'm a mental health therapist, but I work with teens that are on parole probation, and I do what we call multi-systemic therapy. So we look at what's driving certain behaviors and then how we can, you know, develop interventions to actually stop these behaviors before they happen. Instead of like, how are you feeling? What's going into it? And one of the biggest things you studies will find is that getting youth, especially teenagers, involved in pro-social activities such as sports or clubs and stuff like that does definitely 
you know, increase the chances of success and keep them out of trouble because they're hanging out with positive peer groups. You know, they're being monitored more. Um, they're learning a lot as far as the sports and how to work with others. Um, so yeah, that definitely backs up a lot of those studies that you've heard. And, and I definitely learned that a lot later on in life, for sure. And it gives them structure too. And I think, you know, you guys that have the same, we've got really big problems here with youth crime. And, and, and unfortunately, these kids are coming from dysfunctional families and it's intergenerational transference. They've got That's- traumatized parents creating traumatized kids. Without, Absolutely. Without any validation. You know, kids don't, it's not safe for these kids to be at home. It's safer on the streets for them. So it's interesting, Matt. I really want to touch, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on, on youth crime and, and and some of the, um, uh, you know, things we can do to, to minimise it. Let's just go on. So let's talk about when did the gang life sort of start for you? Um, right around high school time is when I really got into that, the skinhead scene. Um, the anti-racist skin had seen, you know, I was into punk rock and stuff like that. And and when I started in high school, there was a group of neo-Nazi skinheads called Volksfront. Um, and they kind of were bullying me because, I, you know, I was wearing dead Kennedy shirts and, you know, these bands that were traditional anti-racist. Mm. Um, and they, were, they kept calling me a sharp, which I didn't know what that was, but it stands for skinhead against racial prejudice. And this, you know, this is pre-internet era. So anything I learned, I learned from books or asking around. So, um, you know, I started reading all the books I could about the old school traditional skinhead scene and, and it was really gang oriented in my area. So, um, you know, the older the older guys, there was about four or five other skinhead gangs in the bigger city of Portland, and they kind of they established one gang and kicked the rest of them out. So it was pretty territorial. It was pretty violent. And from that, I started hanging out with those guys and and kind of you know seeing those were my friends. I started fitting in. So I started kind of emulating what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said too, I think another big piece to it too is I'm I'm an identical twin. So I think at that point in my life, I was really searching for identity. Yeah. So having something to belong to, to represent, to feel a part of was really big for me. Um, and I definitely believe that played a big role into that. So, you know, just kind of trying to build that that macho reputation of tough guy and, and you know, had tough friends. And so I, I think I just kind of dove head first into that. What sort of path did your twin head, twin brother take? What, which which way did he go? He's pretty much done everything I've done. Uh, he he It took him a little bit longer to get into like that punk rock and skinhead scene, but he ended up getting involved too. Um, and then we both kind of moved into motorcycling together around the same time. And then, um, I started prospecting for a local club in Portland before he did, but then after that he did, and then we ended up joining clubs together. So he's, he's done a lot of the same stuff I've done. Can you talk about the process of prospecting? What's that entail? Yeah. I mean, it's different from club to club. Um, the club that I prospected for was a club called the outsiders or like a really old school club in Portland, um, and and essentially, I mean, it, it kind of depends on how you want to look at it. The outsiders ran it really old school. So your your goal is to A, get everyone to get to know you right, and then B, to get to know the club, get to know the lifestyle. Is this a good fit for you? Is this something that you could keep up with? Um, and then while you're doing it, you're learning the protocol. You're learning security. You're learning the traditions and history of the club, the protocol of the club, all their rules and bylaws. Um, you know, some some clubs te- kind of treat it more like uh, fraternal, and, and it seems like there's like hazing and that type of stuff. The any club I was in, or at least when I was you know, more in charge of that stuff, we try to make it more of a learning experience. Is, is this something that we're teaching a potential brother? Are they learning from it? Um, and, and you know, what, what's the best possible outcome? And, you know, we don't want someone that'd be willing to get talked down to or, or treated poorly. And then want to call that person a brother later. Plus I think it really undermines that brotherhood process and, you know, caring for the people that you're with. So the biggest part is just, it's about learning. Um, and you know, most clubs, it's like six months to a year. Some are more than that. 
but you're pretty much at the club's beck and call. And, and, you know, even if it's not for being a gopher, like, you know, running cigarettes or drinks, a lot of times it's for doing security, you know, um, holding up the back of the pack, standing around outside watching the bikes, you know, keeping an eye on the clubhouse, those types of things. And so when I was doing it in Portland, I worked, uh, I worked a job from like seven to three. And then at three, I'd go check into the clubhouse, make sure it was clean and the bar was stocked. And then members would start coming in after work and I'd be there until they sent me home. And so, you know, some nights I was home decent. Sometimes I was there super late at night and was up and going back to work. So it's kind of a challenge as far as the time and the process it takes. Um, but every club does it a little different. I'll tell you something now, and I say this, you know, I've been, a, I, I was a, I'm a, still I'm a friend of many clubs in Australia. What they've done to, to the outlaw bikey scene in Australia, they treat bikies in this country worse than pedophiles. They've got all of these laws that's just draconian, the strict draconian, what they do, and it's crazy. They've got all these laws where they can run into a, uh, an outlaw bikey's house without a warrant, they can raid it, they can tell him he can't associate and that sort of thing. I actually... I've seen a lot. I've seen a fair few friends that joined the clubs that give them structure and it kept them out of trouble. Absolutely. That was a big thing for us, too, is, you know, especially growing up in the gang world and fighting a lot and getting in street fights. Once you put a patch on, it draws a lot of attention to you. And if you're doing something, often your brothers are there doing it for you or doing it with you. So if I'm out getting in bar fights, I'm making a bad look on the club. I'm getting other people arrested. I'm risking myself getting arrested and risking injury to others. If people are out selling drugs and they get caught, it's making the whole club look bad. So in, in reality, the structure and the rules of the club should be a positive influence on people's lives. It should help them straighten up and stay out of trouble. Um, you know, I think the Australia stuff, a lot of it is for show, right? I think a lot of the studies have shown that it hasn't changed criminal statistics at all. Um, no. You know, it might have been overcrowding some of the jails and prison systems, but there's no, you know, there's there's no recovery or anything like that in that process. And I think it's shown it really hasn't had much impact on crime. I just think that Motorcycle clubs are visible, right? They wear a patch. They go out in big packs, and so it's an, they're an easy target for uh, for you know politicians and for law enforcement because everyone can say, "Oh, I've seen them," or "or you know, I see them out and about." So you know, they build this narrative that they're you know the mob on wheels, and Joe Citizen doesn't know the difference, so they're going to go with what they're told. So it's easy to buy into, I think. And seventy five percent of the crime rate, the bike associated crime in Australia, is traffic related. And that and it gives the inference that it's criminal, like it's drug related and that sort of stuff. You know what I mean? That's that's crazy what they do. But you ask them to get the breakdown. So what what is it? Is it drugs? Is it assault or anything like that? And it comes back to being traffic. So they they misconceive, they mislead the public over it. What happens here is is mate. And you know what? They've got them same laws, and they won't apply them to sex offenders. It's crazy. They need. They it's need absolutely a crazy how they do it. That's crazy. Tell me. Tell me about the process of club, man, because, you know, people are, I think, you know, with the advent of the Sons of Anarchy, people had this, people have got this worldwide fascination of what goes on in a bike, you know, what goes on in a club. What's the, what's the average day, like when you're a fully patched member, what's an average day look like for you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, majority of people that join motorcycle clubs join because we love motorcycles. So a lot of what goes into it is working on our bikes, riding bikes, planning runs and rides together, you know, big long trips. Um, you know, a lot of partying going, you know, we'd go out and, and you know, whether it's a campground or a hotel or, or, you know, several bars, but we go out and just, you know, ride, ride from spot to spot and have a good time with our, with our close friends. And, you know, the, the kind of outsider perspective more is, is we like to stick to ourselves. Um, but I mean, the, the day to day pretty much is, is just talking, you know, staying there for your brothers and being in touch with your brothers and, and hang out and spending time with each other as club, as club life progressed for me. And I became in a position of leadership, I kind of 
you know, tried to make it a more positive. And so we started having stuff where like every member had to work out at least three days a week. Um, you know, we had to, we had to all hang out and spend time with each other at least one day a week. Um, a lot of times we were lifting or training together, doing jujitsu together and stuff like that. So just building that brotherhood outside of the bar is a big part of it too. And that's that structure. I'll, I'll, I'll got a, I'll got a 20 going on 23 year old and he's, and he th- the kid thinks he's two pack, you know what I mean? And he, and and I you know and I've had a few clubs because he's a good fighter. This kid, he's got a big name on the Gold Coast in particular as a fighter. And, and you know I've had a few clubs. And man, I've considered it. Like you know they've said, oh, we'd love to sign a young bloke up. And and he and I've said to him, you need structure. And I think, you know, I know people on the outside that don't know the life would say that's poor parenting. But I, I would recommend it to him. He's a kid that needs, it's either military or a bike. Club. Yeah, and I agree. I, I don't you think know? it's much but, different than the military, which is why so many you know military members end up joining motorcycle clubs afterwards is for that structure. There's a lot of accountability to it. you got to learn to be a man of your word and follow through with what you say, that your actions have consequences. So there's a lot of follow through. I mean, there's a lot of really positive things you can learn from that lifestyle. The biggest thing, I mean, it's yeah. different when you're younger, right? Because you're pretty impressionable. But as you get older, the biggest thing is just setting your boundaries and what you're willing to do and not willing to do. And honestly, you know, if, if you're just a man and you stand up for yourself, you really shouldn't be putting yourself at risk for criminal activity outside of the crazy laws you guys have over there. But you really can be an active club member and not really risk, you know, jail or prison, like they used to say. You know, the old adage was death or jail. You join a motorcycle club, you're going to get killed or go to prison. And I've always believed that if that was the case, why would I want my friends to join? And how could I call you my brother if I want you know, I want you to lose your wife and kids and go you know go to prison? And so having those positive outlets have been have played a big role as well. Tradesmen in clubs that never wouldn't steal a kiss, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I've seen that. I, you know, I'm, I'm like I remember working on a building site, and, and these laws come out. And he goes, "Man, I'm a fucking I'm a tradie. Here I am working, and they don't want me to be around my brothers. They don't want me a bear part. You know, because I work in the field." I work in the field. I've got an organisation that helps survivors of institutional sexual abuse get compensation. I've got 21,000 clients at the moment. I work with 42 different law firms. And, really and some, cool. of my, some of my clients are in clubs and they said, we found that safe place. We found, a, you know, a place where people believe us, that people have got us, got our backs and that, you know what I mean? And that's not too uncommon. Like people that, you know, you're, you're blessed that you had that functionality, but a lot of them do come from that dysfunctionality, you know, and they find Absolutely. that place man talk us about talk us about some of the people that you encountered that come from some real because you would have seen trauma firsthand you know what i mean some serious trauma firsthand and talk us about that and how them them sort of people are welcomed into the club when people know their stories well and i think you know a big part of that just like military or stuff like that is when you're spending stressful time with somebody or, or you know long whether it be a long motorcycle trip or you know being together during police harassment or or you know potentially having issues with other clubs if you're going through traumatic experiences with others it's the closest we can get to each other i mean that's when bonds are really formed that's when we really get to know each other that's when those you know the stories that we laugh about later or tell the younger kids about later it's those are all formed in those rough situations and generally, people that have that trauma history are pretty good at, you know, navigating tough situations. I mean, you know, they're, they're and, and then when you meet other people that have similar backgrounds or they've also gone through different trauma stuff and that, you know, I guess one of the misconceptions is this whole masculine um, culture. But in reality, close brothers can talk about anything. So there's numerous late nights, you know, opening up and talking about things or, hey, I love you, brother. I'm here for you, anything you need. And so having that support system and that structure is huge. And, and you know, for not only survivors of trauma, but just being in, in club life in general. You just touched on something there and you said something that every young person or some person that's been through trauma and that needs to hear, I love you, I love you brother. I'm here for you. 
so important. And that's like, and you know, add, you know, you're building fucking, you're building someone who can run through anything. And you know that, I, you know, I, I look, I have catch up with my mate who's a national president of a club over here all the time. And he, one of his rules, he's brought to the club. If you play up in your wife, you can't be loyal to your brother. Yeah, I like that one too. And, and I mean, there's a lot that goes to that. And that was, you know, some of the things that I kind of learned as I went on as well is it's the same for what kind of employee are they? Are they always a victim? Are they always in trouble? Are they a hard worker that they care about their name and the reputation? Because that's the person that's going to be a good member as well. Yeah. Um, And that's the same. You you know, they're loyal to their old lady or, or, you know, those types of things because loyalty is a huge part in this world. And so is honesty. And if if you're disloyal or dishonest in one circle, how are we supposed to believe you're going to be like that in our circle? Yeah. But, you know, one of the kind of funny things to it, too, is, you know, I'm I'm a mental health therapist, um, so I'm a counselor. And so, you know, here we are at church with all these alpha male tough guys, and I'm asking about how they're feeling and supporting each other. And, you know, grown men, you know, tough guys openly talking about their feelings, but it goes a long way, too. And it makes you really care about one another and, and the fact that you have someone there with you through anything. You know, that that's a big part of it, and I think that's a big draw to a lot of people. I'll tell you, as a young fellow, like, you know, I went to prison when I was 16. They put me in an adult prison when I was 16. They housed me with the worst pedophiles in Australia at the time, and I was sexually abused while I was there. But coming out of there, that would have been the perfect fit for me because I would have felt safe there. I, loved, I used to, in the old days, you could go to clubhouse on a Friday night and the best part, and I'll tell you who was safe. Women and children were safe in them places. Yeah, I mean, a guest should always be safe, right? I mean, and... There's numerous ways to look at it, but first of all, if you're a guest at a clubhouse, you're somebody's friend, so you should be treated well anyways, especially women and children. Um, And then the other part, too, is a lot of these clubs back then, at least, were selling drinks or having raffles or whatever. Hmm. And, you know, the more women that come to the parties, the more guys are going to show up and it's going to be a good time. So Hmm. treating guests respectfully and definitely treating the women with respect goes a long way. And that's another kind of, you know, unwritten rule, or, or I guess it's probably actually a written rule in a lot of clubs, but it's another rule in most clubs too that you know you can't mess with another brother's old lady or or even you know you even ask permission if the brothers talked to with a girl before so you know there's a lot of that structure that's built off of respect and it's not just respecting the brother it's respecting the brother's family the old lady everybody involved because it's really that family atmosphere if the old lady's not happy he's probably not going to be a good member you know so it's keeping everybody happy and, and feeling like they're a part of something mate really well said what you're saying um you know tell us about man because you know you see these runs and i and i've often seen big groups of bikes when in the day and they take them off you get 40 or 50 man that looks like so much fun it's wild man you know when i first started getting into motorcycles i'd ride around with four or five of my friends and i thought that was incredible right i felt like a viking out there on the road six of us and then as club life progressed you know when we started the mongols in oregon there were six of us and so that was a big pack for me and then one of the biggest packs we had in Oregon was about 90-something motorcycles. And, you know, that takes several minutes for the whole pack to go by. And then out here in, in uh, Missouri and Illinois, we've had some packs that were almost 200 motorcycles strong. Or, down, you know, down in California riding with, the, with you know, the main part of the club, the Mongols out there. Several hundred in the pack. And there's it's just a feeling you can't be beat. It's, it's insane. You know, you can be – can't see the front, can't see the back. People all around you. I mean, it's it's a wild and exhilarating experience. Going for, like I tell you, I, I had a, one of the boys pick me up. It was about ten of them once, and we went through the city at about two o'clock in the morning. And the sound of the bikes bouncing off them, bang, that is some, something that everyone should expect. That is just like wow. Yeah, it can't be beat, man. It's really yeah. unexplainable until you've done it, you know. And then it's something that you crave moving forward because it's such a cool experience. Talk about like when you when you're on a ride like that, you go like you ride off. Bike scene in America is a, a lot better than obviously it's a, a bit more unregulated than it is over here. They've just brought these draconian law, laws on. But talk about what happens when you turn up in a town. 
Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on the town and the event, right? Some of these big bikes, like, say, Daytona, or some of those more popular ones you hear about, for the most part, they treat bikers really well because that's where their income comes from. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they know that from the tourist stuff. Now, as they've gotten more popular and, you know, the different laws for club stuff here, too, some of them become no colors allowed. You know, you're not allowed to wear your patches in the area and stuff, but a lot of them you still can. The times it's a trip is like we did a, a club run to southern Utah, which is kind of it was a pretty desolate area. And it was a two day ride to get there from Oregon. So we're stopping at these little podunk gas stations and, you know, diners along the way, you know, 30, 40 Mongols deep. Those are always the the cool experiences because, you know, those small town people are always willing to come up and talk and ask you what's going on. They have a different impression than like the city people or the people that are used to bikers showing up. So to them, it's a huge deal, right? It's like the talk of the town. A hundred bikes just came through town. And so, you know, ma- making those connections and meeting people in that experience is always really cool. And just kind of that feeling of you pull up into the town with, you know, 50 or 60 bikes. The, the challenge could be, depending on where it's at, is law enforcement, right? If, if you've got a big pack coming to a new area, they instantly, you know, sound the alarm and treat you like you're there to commit crimes. And next thing you know, everyone's handcuffed and getting searched and everything like that. So, you know, there's, it's kind of a catch-22. But overall, it's always a really good time, especially riding through areas we haven't been through before, checking out new spots, stuff like that. It's been really cool. And it's good for the economy. I, one of the boys, uh, my mate was... Um and a national run, national run in, in Italy, and he was and he was at the lead, and someone was on the side trying to donate, get money for charity, and mate, what I've got, he goes, by the time the rest, all the bikes went through, she was good for us. Someone would have been doing an armed robbery on her and gotten a good earn out of the like, you know what I mean? He <laughs> right. said it would have been. He, he said honestly, she would have got you know twenty grand out of them boys. You know what I mean? We did one in a, a little place called Boulder, Nevada, right outside of Vegas. And the law enforcement made it this big deal, right? It was all over the news that this hundreds of bikers were coming from. They're going to ruin the town and all this stuff. But when the news media and then the comment section, you know, of the newspaper and stuff, the locals loved it. I mean, the amount of money that the club brought there for three days of business from, you know, shopping on the local places, eating there, you know, all the, all the local liquor stores and convenience stores and stuff, the money brought in from hotels. I mean, it, it pumped so much money into that local economy, and then. Obviously, when clubs go out to stuff like this, this isn't the 1960s. It's not the stuff in movies where they go up and they break down all the bars. It's, we want to be welcome back, right? Yeah. You want to be able to go into a town, and when we leave, people say, "Man, those guys were great. You know, they were respectful. They treated, you know, they treated everyone well." And so, the, there's like you said before, there's usually a lot less crime involved because you're in town. You know, law enforcement's too busy writing tickets, but outside of that, no one's committing any major crime. Everyone's respectful, and we're just spending a lot of money in the town. So it, it really should be a benefit and is a benefit. Um, the unfortunate part is, you know, the government and law enforcement try and spin it in a different way. Always. Always. It's fucking – and over here they've got this thing, we're winning the war on drugs. Man, that war was never – you'll never win that war. You'll never win it. Yeah. But they try to sell it to us all the time, and it's like, okay, well, go and tell that to the uh, parents of a kid who just lost their son to heroin. No, you're winning the war on drugs. And yeah, this, I don't think anyone uh, won the war on drugs. No, nah, that's, that's that, was, sure. that was – ne- they were never in it. But my friend, um, he's a national president of a club over here, and, and the cop has knocked on his door, and he goes, how come there's no ice dealers in this area since you've moved in? You know what I mean? Because they've all, they've all taken off, and he, they've got a policy in their club that you can't d- d- deal with uh, methamphetamine. We call it ice here, but methamphetamine, yeah. you know? What sort of policies yeah. do you guys have about that, like, you know, in your club? So when Little Dave took over from the club, which I joined in 2007, and then Little Dave took over around 2009, um, we had those big raids in 2008, Operation Black Rain. There were some undercover agents in the club, and a lot of people were arrested. 
And there was some members doing illegal activity. And so we tried to change a lot of that stuff. And so the first big change is that everyone had to have a visible mean of income. So a nine to five um, or, you know, something along those lines, whether it's be retirement or whatever. Mm. Um, because like I said before, you know, if this guy down, if the guy in my chapter is getting busted for selling drugs and it's in the paper, everyone's going to assume we're all selling drugs. So it's kind of a bad look for everybody. Um, and then, like I said, when I became got into leadership positions, I oversaw a lot of the Northwest and then later the Midwest and a lot of the out of country chapters. And I, we, we had a no meth rule. Mm. You know, I, I can't say, I'd love to say that was a national rule, but it was mainly in my regions, but there mm. was a no meth rule. All of the clubs pretty much have a no heroin rule, yeah. no shooting drug rule, but even snorting, I had a no meth rule. And my biggest thing was, listen, if you want to party on the weekends, it's not, if, if you're still showing up to work, you're paying your bills and you're upholding your obligations. I don't care whether your drug of choice is alcohol or maybe a little bit of Coke. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. But if it's interfering with the type of member you are or the way you're living your life, then we will step in. And the Mongols have a clean and sober chapter called uh, Pasadena, California. They, they actually run a rehab center that brothers can get treatment for for free. Um, so you can get drug and alcohol treatment if, if, you know, if there's an issue. So a lot of things like that. And, and again, it goes back to us saying where it's a positive influence on people's lives. You know, we, wow. we wanted people to say when they joined the club that the Mongols or whatever club you joined, it made you a better person, not that your life went downhill and you ruined it. Talk us about you. You talked about a leadership. What is your, you know, what is your title within the club? Well, I'm out in bad standings now. I, I retired, and then mm. a couple months later, my status got changed. But um, you know, I started in Oregon in 2007. I started the very first chapter in Oregon, so I was a chapter president. Mm. Around 2010, I was brought into the club's mother chapter, so I oversaw. Um, well, at first, I was just kind of a soldier, and then I, I developed a, a program, a support club program called the Raiders. It was already. In, in place in Oklahoma, but I kind of changed and developed it so that it could spread. And there's chapters in Australia now, Thailand, all around the I'll get pulled so out. I, I, I wear a Raiders hat. I love Raiders hats. You know, I wear, <laughs> I'm a hat wearer. I went and, and over in Perth, some bloke, you know, some bloke pulled me up and goes, Are you? I said, Am I what? And they said, uh, Are you? And I said, I don't know the fuck you're talking about. Yeah, it was a trip. So I was wanting to kind of do a support club thing in, in Oregon and was speaking to little Dave about it and come up with some ideas. And what we didn't want to be like how a lot of the other clubs and no disrespect to them, but you know, a lot of the other clubs have 20 different support clubs or a hundred different support clubs. Yeah. We just wanted to have one. And so they are one already existed called the Raiders in Oklahoma, but they were just a small, there was actually one guy left when, when I kind of took it over, but we built it in a way where um, they have to be accountable to mo local Mongol chapters. And so it was really structured. It's ran a lot the same as the Mongols. Um, you know, they do spend a lot of time together and do a lot of things together. Um, and it ended up, you know, the way we structured it ended up being really successful and growing around the world. So I was in charge of that. Um, I helped start all the Australian chapters from some relationships I had with another club back then. Mm. So I helped start that chapter. And then I uh, just kind of oversaw some of the out-of-country chapters until right around the time, time I retired. I see, um, especially in Perth with the Mongols, they've got a lot of Sudanese in there. And and what, what they do over there, man, like the, the boss over there is a mate of mine. You know, there's no they, – because they, they talk about – We've got uh, problems with African gangs over here. These kids were born in Australia, but they're of African descent. But they they can colour it in and call them African gangs. They're actually Australians, right? Right. And um, but it sounds better in the news. We call them African gangs, and um, and um, and and a lot of them have joined the club. And all of a sudden, there's no problem with African gang crime. It's crazy, you know, and they get that structure and everything like that. Now they're Mongols, you know what I mean? That's if they get in trouble, they're not African. They they prefer to call them stuff, you know, like um, bikies, and and it's it's crazy. Talk about, you know, I've always had this fascination with blokes coming out of the military joining clubs. You know, what happens there? 
I think like we talked about a lot of it's the structure, right? If you're in the military, you're used to the command structure. Um, you're also used to, if you are in leadership, you know, being responsible for the lives of other people, um, you know, for keeping everyone tight, for following the rules. So a lot of people, you know, it's all these guys join the military and, and it, you know, it's that attitude of I'm a man, I don't answer to other people, but the, the structure is different, right? And, and you're, you're doing it for a bigger reason. And so a lot of the military is you're doing something for the greater good. It's for something that's beneficial to the group, not just yourself. And I think all of that translates over to the motorcycle world. And, and especially, you know, I, I wasn't in the military, so I can't speak to that. But from what I hear is, you know, the guys that see combat or have gone through rough situations together, Find another group of guys that, like I said, we, whether it's long motorcycle trips or, you know, the, the unfortunate times where there's issues with other clubs, but we go through rough times together, too. So there's always kind of that um, the adrenaline rush, you know, appeal is there. But then the fact that you're still following orders and structure and you're a part of something bigger than yourself. So, you know, what you do affects everyone around you. I think those draw a lot of same parallels to the military. So I think it's a really good fit. And and normally those blokes bring something else to the club themselves. Like when it becomes like if you get the special forces guys and everything like that, they bring another level of physical training. Absolutely, and that, that's know. what I was saying earlier too. Is um, you know, years ago um, when I was kind of remodeling a lot of my areas, doing the no meth rule and stuff. One thing I noticed is you know a lot of the times we were spending together was at like the clubhouse or the bar, and I really wanted to start having some more positive influence on each other or getting to know people outside of the, that bar vibe, and so we had a rule in, in our regions that everyone had to work out at least three days a week. And whether that was martial arts or lifting weights, whatever you're into. But I noticed a lot of times we started doing those things together and that built it, that built that separate level of, or that second level of, of closeness, you know, that, that brotherhood, there was times where the Oregon clubhouse, we'd had wrestling mats down and we'd, we do jujitsu before or after class or, or after church, you know, or one of the guys would bring mitts and teach the other guys how to box. Or we do a lot of, you know, special forces like the stick and knife fighting and stuff like that. So, you know, they could, they could teach brothers stuff, that they brought, you know, they learned in the military and they could teach it, but it's also just stuff for us to enjoy and share together. You talk, and, and you're a mental health worker, so you would know the benefits of exercise on someone's mental Absolutely. health, you know? Yeah. My, yeah, my, and yeah. that's what I used to tell the region because we would vote on it and there was always, you know, some of the older guys or some of the guys that were out of shape would always kind of push back about why do I have to work out? But really, I would always tell them is tell me one reason you can't. Tell me one negative to a rule of working out. And there isn't one, right? There's, there's, it's absolutely all positives for between mental health and then spending time with each other and just staying physically active. Plus, you know, it goes a long way too when you're running a, a strict club on tight security and protocol and everyone's in shape and can handle themselves. I mean, it, it plays a big role and it's really important. So I just, I don't see a downside to having people work out in that type yeah, style. I, well, in any lifestyle, but for that one, for sure. Oh, for me, I have, man, I, I've got post-traumatic stress and I think the best way for me to address that on a regular basis is I train two hours a day every day, seven days a week. I don't have days off, you know what I mean? And I think the importance of that, and I stress to anyone listening you know, that's going through any of that mental health stuff, get to the gym, do something, get moving, get walking. You mentioned the word church. Can you explain the terminology church? I know what it means, but can you explain to the listeners what church means? Yeah, that's what we call our weekly meetings. Um, and you know, if it, the, the the rumor or I guess the history of it is, is that, you know, back in the day, they would tell the wives or the old ladies, hey, I'm, I'm going to church. Um, but that's just what we call our weekly meetings. You know, I think every club's probably similar in the fact that they do it most time it's weekly. But the Mongols was minimum or mandatory once a week. Everyone had to get together for our weekly meetings. It's where we would discuss like upcoming runs, events that we're hosting, you know, all that all that type of stuff. And so. Um, yeah, it's called church. And I, I think it's funny because I, I just I've been in that lifestyle for so long that I forget 
yeah. <laughs> that it's not what yeah. it sounds like. And and sometimes I've had people go, oh my gosh, you know that Mooch goes to church. <laughs> <laughs> He's a what national what 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 sort of church does he go to? Hey, um, <laughs> right. You're an academic, right? So where does that sort of play into? Like, were you still in the club when you started studying, or what was the deal? Absolutely, yeah. In uh, 2008, I picked up some charges for chasing some cops. Some I, some people were trespassing <laughs> on my property, the very short version of it. Mm. I chased them. They turned out to be federal agents. So I got uh, – they arrested me for conspiracy to commit kidnapping and attempted kidnapping. Um, so I sat in jail, and I fought it. I took it to, to a jury trial, and I won. But part of what I did lose is some of the, the misdemeanors, reckless endangerment, reckless driving. And so they put me on you know, a felony gang probation. So I wasn't allowed to fill, affiliate with the club, wasn't allowed to have any active role in the club. Um, and I, I did, right? I still stayed active. And, I, and so I kept getting caught and going back to jail over and over a couple months at a time for affiliating. And there was at one point I'd walked out of jail and I'd actually gone into the jail and, and a corrections officer there had said, hey, man, I lost a bet. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I just, I bet the other guys, you wouldn't be back here because you're not like the people in here and nothing against people that have done time. A lot of us have, but, you know, I was looking around at these guys. A lot of them had drug problems or, you know, different gang life stuff or whatever. And I didn't see myself. I wasn't, to me, I wasn't breaking any real law, right? I was hanging out at the club. Like I wasn't out doing illegal activities and I was, I needed to break that, that cycle. I was tired of going in and out of jail all the time. And so I was trying to figure out something meaningful I could do with my life. I got a felony charge at 18. And like I said, most of my family were teachers and with the felony, I couldn't be a teacher. So was looking into something I could do still in that profession. And there were some Mongols that I know. One of them has a, a clinical, he's a clinical psychiatrist. He has a PhD in clinical a Mongol, psychology. Yeah, that, geez, that breaks the stereotype, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, there's several guys with professional careers and, and, you know, academic careers and stuff like that. And so a couple of them were, uh, two of them were professors in psychology at different colleges. And then one had his PhD. Um, and he was doing a lot of drug and alcohol counseling and working with, with inmates and trying to help against recidivism. And so I really liked a lot of that stuff. And so I figured he, he has more tattoos than me. The guy looks like a straight up gangster. He is a gangster. Um, and I'm, you know, I mean that in the biker term, he's not out doing illegal stuff, but you know, a tough guy and a respectable man. And and I figured if he could do it, I should try it. So at first, my initial goal was just to go to school for two years to get my drug and alcohol counseling degree. But within those two years, I really fell in love with psychology. So then I got my bachelor's degree in psychology, and then I got my master's degree in social work. Um, and I started out, I was still, I was still a Mongol this whole time. And in fact, one of my internships was supposed to be at the youth authority here in, or there in Oregon. And, uh, they gave me like a, an address for the training and I, you know, I was hired as an intern and I showed up to the training and the training was at the Oregon police Academy. Mm. So you can imagine how well that went over. <laughs> I was there for about half a day before I got kicked out. Um, but I ended up suing the state for discrimination because they said I was fired for being a Mongol, which isn't against the law. And I won. Um, and it wasn't like a big monetary win, but you know, it was the principal and, and was trying to establish some case law in the area. And so I won that, but then, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, like, they're not going to hire me for an actual job now, right? So, But did you actually, get him reinstated? Could you go back after after you won? No. Could you they go were, back to the they were, Well, they would just – it was for, it was an unpaid internship, and so mm. it would, they could just say yes or no. There was like mm. – the only thing that, that screwed them is that they openly said, hey, this is because you're a Mongol. If they would have just said, hey, it's not a good fit or we're not looking for any other interns, it would have been fine. But they openly said that was why. Um, and part of it too is, is, you know, my earlier crimes were against law enforcement and you know how that goes. And so yeah, yeah. those, the, the Vic so-called victims of my crime were, were actively involved following what I do and what I was up to. And you know, we're trying to throw a wrench in that pretty often. But once I got into the field, I started out, um, I started with doing per domestic violence counseling. So I, I work with perpetrators of domestic violence and teach them 
for lack of a better term, kind of a more feminist perspective. And um, that was really meaningful. And I really enjoyed that a lot. I did do some substance abuse counseling, but I just, it didn't really click with me. I didn't really care much for it. Not that I don't like the work, but most of those people are court order. They're, they don't want to be there. And so I didn't see a lot of meaningful change. Um, and then I moved into a multi-systemic therapy, which I was telling you about before, where the client is actually the youth. So it's it's teenagers from 12 to 17 that are at risk of being placed out of the home, going to juvenile academy, or being kicked out of school. And we're looking at, you know, high-risk antisocial behaviors. But what's different with that is we're not, I'm not really working with the teen. I'm working with the parents. Because like you were saying before, a lot of that comes down to parenting. And yeah. so a lot of what we're doing is instilling you know, different parenting roles within, within that family system and, you know, teaching supervision and rewards and consequences and, you know, motivation and accountability and, you know, a lot of those pieces, because that's what we see goes a long way. And that's when you mentioned earlier too, about getting involved in pro-social activities and sports. And so that's what I've been doing for the last five years now. Mate, that's amazing. Like I, I just, you just, People, the general public don't hear of stories like that. You know, you got, you know, bikies, they're at universities, they're academics. No one hears of that because they got this knucklehead sort of reputation that the media portrays them for. And that, that just blew me away, man. I'm not, that's the first time I'd ever heard of that, you know. Yeah, um, like I said, you know, one of the things that got me into it is there was other Mongols already doing it. So it was another part of that, you know, positive role models that were within the club that really helped get my life on track. So, you know, the narrative of, you know, I joined a biker gang and got all these criminal charges and it ruined my life really isn't the case with me because for me, it helped shape my life in a really positive way. And I can imagine if your clubs that, that you know, you cl- your club was doing it, I imagine there'd be other people in other clubs and uh, of similar nature doing similar things. And yeah, that's absolutely. That it's not specific to the Mongols. There's a lot of, you know, one percenters in the United States that, you know, work in different academic fields or, have, or you know, are high up in unions or have professional careers or, you know, for, work for law, you know, um, uh, law firms and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of very successful one percenters in the world that have and if, meaningful and gainful employment. So, if a if a young member, like a young member, come into a club, the club would be encouraging of that person to chase a, a academia. Absolutely. I mean, if that's what their goals are, if that's what's going to make them a better member, because what's the alternative? Um, you know, we, we kind of wear them out, and they don't feel like they belong in this world, and they don't feel like they have a goal, and then they just, you know end up. Those are the people that end up you know going to prison or being addicted to substances or whatever. So. You know, at the end of the day, what kind of brother are they going to? What kind of what are they going to bring to the table if they're unfulfilled in their life? And then, what kind of brother are they going to be to to the rest of us? So, in reality, trying to build each other up and and you know what can what's best for my brother is going to be the best for me too in the long run. Yeah, good way of putting it. Let's talk about what the work you do now. So, you know, what does that entail? Um, so now I'm a supervisor, so I don't carry a big caseload right now. I pretty much review treatment plans and you know help market the program and find uh, kids that are a good fit for the program. Um, but like I said, we work with teens that are 12 to 17. They have high, you know, antisocial behaviors or at high risk of being placed in either a juvenile facility or anywhere out of the home, whether it's foster care, whatever. And our main goal is to keep the youth in the home. And to have that goal, we really need to work with a lot with the caregivers, which sometimes are actual parents. Sometimes it's, you know, fictive kin or cousins or uncles and aunts. Um, but our goal is to keep them united in the home and have a, you know, more more fulfilling home life so that their learning skills, like, like we were saying before, whether it be parenting skills or just getting them into, um, you know, finishing school, getting them into some sort of trade, something that's going to be meaningful for them that gives them goals and expectations. I see that here and I talk about like, oh, I'm getting involved in, you know, working with troubled youth. And I say that if these kids felt safe at home, they wouldn't be out the street at two o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. You know? And, you know, another big part of that too is parenting. You know, that yeah. a lot of parents don't know where their kids are at at two in the morning. And if if you don't know where your kid is, or you're not keeping an eye on them. What do you think they're going to do? I mean, 
we all remember when we were teenagers, right? And I can't believe it would be specific to me. If I wasn't supervised, I was probably doing some dumb shit. Um, yeah. So, you know, th- and that's where, you know, sports comes into play or school and stuff like that is because they're inherently you're being supervised in these things. But really a parent having an active role in their in their kid's life and then teaching them, um, you know, rewards and consequences. Yeah, you can go out with your friends, but I need to know who the parents are. I need the contact information when you're going to be home. You know, it's a lot of, I think in this day and age, a lot of younger parents want to be their kid's friend instead of a parent. Um, and the studies will show that the parents that were, you know, more authoritative actually end up having better relationships down the road because as an adult, you realize that your parents cared about you, you know, that they they wanted what was best for you. And, and it might not click in your teenage years, but we all know it does when you get older. Um, and so having that parent actively involved in their in their in the kid's life is what usually plays the biggest role. Because like you said, you know, unsupervised out at 2 a.m., but the real driver to that is that they're able to leave the house at 2 a.m. and parents don't know where they're at. So with the way that multi-systemic therapy works is instead of saying, how are you feeling or how does this make you feel? We look at what's what we call drivers, what's driving the behavior. So like, say for mm-hmm. example, there's a, a kid that's smoking marijuana instead of saying, Oh, it helps with anxiety. What I look at is how is he able to smoke it? If he's, you know, is he supervised? Where's he getting money to pay for it? Who does he buy it from? Is he hanging out with negative peers? What's the, I'll sequence his whole day and figure out, okay, what's the window of time where he's free to, you know, to go out and smoke and nobody notice. If we come up with interventions along those lines, those are lasting interventions because that's something that when I'm no longer in the home, the caregiver can keep doing without me. And that's the whole goal is to empower the caregivers, empower the parents to learn these skills to do them with the social services or out of their home. Because I'm sure you've seen it too, but you know, too many people get reliant on social services and, mm. and feel like they can't do it without other people's help. And, and well, that's intergenerational. You're yeah. saying second and, and third program, generational. The pro- yeah, absolutely. And the program I'm with, the goal is to teach them the you know how to do these things so that when we're not in the home, they can do them on their own. So I've done 23 years in prison, and um, one of the biggest things I say to people when they come out of prison, I say, get a job, get involved, get moving, be active. You know, my goal is I've been out. I'm coming out for seven years. I've been out of trouble for as long ever and my goal when I came out of prison was to work 12 hours a day seven days a week for two years and then reassess now if I would have worked at McDonald's or whatever uh, Hungry Jack's or whatever I would have been all right I would have even a minimum dollar because I would have been that busy I wouldn't have been spending money and I say that to people and I say that to young kids I say you know yeah the importance of getting into a job getting into sport combine a job and sport and you should be pretty much sweet whether it's a boxing club or whatever wrestling club whatever if you can combine that that. What sort of services do you, can you now? Are you involved in that? You can provide these kids that are sort of go along. What, what's available in America? Because we often get taught, we get the impression that there's in America that there's no services available to these types of kids. You know, we we we, we call ourselves the lucky country. Oh, they're fucking lucky. Let me tell you. Yeah. No. Honestly, we have a ton of their social services are really big here, um, especially for for teens. I mean, it continues to get better, but especially for youth. Um, but, you know, one of the big things is getting them involved in school, staying active in school. Um, and and there's a lot of new programs where actually it's punishable to the parents if their kids aren't going to school or truant. So now they're holding parents ac- accountable to making sure the youth are going to school. When we say getting them involved in those pro-social activities, whether it's sports or, or you know, debate club or chess club or whatever, whatever piques their interest, that's putting them around like-minded people. That's a more positive influence with, with tip, you know, similar goals and interests. Um, to just like we said, when you come, you know, coming out of prison, sure. Part of it is I want to be so busy that I can't get in trouble. Right. And that's, but mm. that's the same with kids. If they're going to school all day and and then playing sports all night or in sort of club, there's just less time they can get in trouble. That's just, you know, that's just factual. That's how it's going to be. 
But then the lessons you learn from that are the parts that actually shape who you are in the long term. Right? That's what keeps you out of trouble is learning those personal accountability pieces and then having pride in what you're doing and having goals and setting goals and trying to accomplish them, seeing the rewards for those things versus seeing the consequences when you don't. So I think those are the things that shape you in older, you know, older years. But when you're younger, the biggest thing is just keeping them busy. I relate to what you're saying so much because I was that kid, you know. I come home from boys' home and, I, you know, in my case, there was like a lot of abuse going on and then boys' home. Then we lost kids. But the government is starting to look for lived experience. They're starting to realise a, a lot of the people they've had in the past, these government advisors and that, weren't worth a fucking two, two cents, right? Now, if a kid... If I, if I walk in a room, me, a troubled kid, I walk in a room and I see you, just the look of you, I'm listening to you. You've got lived yeah. experience. That's gone, long, that's gone a long way. And that was one of my arguments early on is initially, you know, you can't, you couldn't work in this field with a criminal record. And obviously some of them make sense, right? If you have cr- crimes against youth or whatever, you're mm. going to be a trusted member of society that's going to be alone with people. Obviously, you you know, you can't have those types of charges. But you have ex- lived experience charges, you know, you got in fights growing up or, you know, whatever. Those types of things, um, you know, visible tattoos, whatever, those used to be couldn't work in the field of visible tattoos either. But on that exact, I mean, exactly what you're saying goes a long way. I don't, as a therapist, it's never my goal to tell kids that I know what they're going through or I can feel because all of our experiences are different, right? And and it's almost mm-hmm. belittling their experience by saying, oh, I get it. I understand. But with the way I look and carry myself from my lived experiences, I don't have to say these things. These teenagers can look at me and go, oh, he, he probably knows what I'm talking about or he probably knows what this is like. He gets it. Versus we you send it. someone we in there it. with no life experience and and it's just not going to be helpful. I mean, there's a lot of studies that show, you know, in order to be successful in therapy, you have to have that clinical rapport. And, you know, if there's no rapport built, it's not going to happen. And that's how rapport is easily or not easily, but that's, you know, how rapport gets built is by having at least knowing that we have some sort of shared interest or shared experiences. If I was a kid walking in, my walls would be dropped straight away as soon as I see it because I'd see it in your eyes. I said, this bloke knows me. Yeah, and that's how kids. That's how kids respond and they learn. If they feel as though you know them, they'll they'll drop the walls and drop the bullshit, drop the ego because they can't out ego you. Absolutely, and they can't out ego me. And they're not, and do, they're not impressing guys like us with tough guy stories or that macho stuff. Yeah. So that that falls away pretty quick. There's a, a thing called Brisbane Youth Detention Centre, and I was getting invited there to work with. African gangs, which are, as I say, they're Australian-born African kids, but African gangs, and made them in this specialised unit. And man, and you know, and and some of the things when you hear there's like Dr. Bruce Perry and April Winfrey's got a book out, "What Happened to You." I think it's called. It's an interesting book, and it's and it's addressing the underlying issue of why you're behaving like the way you do. And I, that that's the bit I like to to do. I like to peel back the onion when I work these kids and say, "Okay, well, what happened here?" In a lot of the cases, these kids were extremely harassed by the police, and and when they react, the police are going, "Look at you! Look at you! Yep. Look at you!" You know and what I mean? There's that's, that. You know, then they don't trust law enforcement. There's that. You know, gen- lifetime of not trusting law enforcement because of past issues and then that yeah. obviously has inherent issues that come along with it and how do we rebuild that trust when that goes man that, that's going to be a tough one because you know back in the day and probably well before my era but you know back then law enforcement were, mo- were more like social workers right they were the guy around town that everybody knew and they and they knew the families and they knew the, the parents na- you know the ki- the parents names and they were actively involved in trying to do what was best for the community and i think you know policing's gone so far from that these days that I'm not yeah. really sure how to bring it back with, you know, for-profit prisons and, you know, all these mandatory minimum sentencing or like, like the crazy laws you guys have. It takes the personality out of it. They don't care 
why is the kid doing what he's doing? All they care about is what, here's what the punishment is. Um, and yeah. it's no longer, you know, restorative in any way. It's just, it's just, you know, punitive. It's just, here's go do your time and get out. And that's why we see all this recidivism. So I think the biggest change would be changing to a more restorative justice system where, um, you know, in the United States, they got rid of the, uh, a lot of the, the weight training equipment. They got rid of the schools and the books because they were saying, oh, you know, they're going to prison and they're becoming super criminals. But in reality, what they were initially doing back then was learning a trade, finding hobbies or things they were into. And they were coming out with reasons to not reoffend. Um, you know, but if you're just crammed into a, a box and not taught new skills, you're likely to continue to reoffend. So I, I think. I think culturally, no matter what country you're in, or, or at least from our two countries, things have really shifted away from that restorative piece. And it's just about punitive, like what can we do for maximum punishment? Deterrence sentences. I, I got a deterrence sentence. When I was 16, I stole a Porsche from an affluent area. And I got a 12-month the sentence, and he said, oh, it'll, be a deter it'll deter you from re re future reoffending. I called him Judge Nostradamus because he got it wrong, you know, and he, right. and he housed me with the worst sex offenders in the state at the time. And that's the type of thing they do. They expose these kids to a lot of trauma with these deterrent sentences. They don't work. And I'm, I'm with you, brother. I'm with you, the restorative stuff about creating, you know, what, like what sort of things do we got to put in place for these kids not to go down that path? A lot of parents would look at you and say, what do you suggest? What, like I've got a five-year-old kid. He, he, he doesn't like taking orders or anything like that. What, what, what sort of structure do we start with that kid now to sort of to to, make, to ensure that he's not going to go down that path? Well, I think early on is establishing the a meaningful consequences and rewards, and and just like you know for training a new pet versus a, a kid, you know rewards are, are going to be more heavily leaned on than consequences. Kids learn from rewards. So establishing that early on, you know, if you do this behavior, here's what you get rewarded, but also that there's a consequence. So setting that structure up really early in life and being consistent. I also think one of the hardest parts between parents and kids is that a lot of times expectations aren't expressed. And so dad will be mad because, oh, kid didn't take do the dishes, but he was never told to do the dishes. And then, oh, he should just know better. So I think, you know, having the, those communication pieces about what are my expectations and so that everyone's on the same page with what those expectations are, I think that goes a long way too. Um, so a lot of it is just, you know, being actively involved and, and communicating with your kid, but also, you know, being an authority figure with your with your children and, and not just being their best friend. And that's hard. That's hard. Like, I, I, I know that's really hard. For a lot of as you say, parents, some people just want to be their kid's best friend, and and you and, get that because you get that immediate gratification, right? But it, like I said, if you look at the studies or look at kids as they get older, who becomes more successful or who actually cares for their parents long term, it's the ones that have the stricter parents. And I'm not talking abusive strict, it's, you know. Let's be realistic and keep it in the frame. But I'm saying that caring strict, you know, where the kid can look back and say, "My parents did this because they cared about me." Um, that's, that's what, you know, helps shape kids as they get older. And that's also what shows expectations. That's that, that's when you start having pride in, in what you're doing, because you see that's making your parents happy. you now your teachers are happy. You're getting those accolades, the pats on the, on the back. I mean, even in a simple spec, like, look like when you first started lifting weights and someone starts saying, Hey, you're getting bigger. That's all boom, you, man, you're motivated start lifting all the time. Yeah. Right. Cause you're getting that pat on the back. And it's the same mm. with kids, you know, hey, you know, I'm proud of you for doing well in school or, or you're doing great at the sport or whatever. But just those really positive, encouraging words go a really long way. I think they go a long way with adults, too. I th Absolutely. You know, yeah. You know, I, I got told what a scumbag I was for 23 years by prison officers. And I'm out here now doing the work I do. And I constantly get 
little things like inspirational or whatever I get, like I get really good compliments, man. Because all of that stuff, a lot of these kids, like especially the ones who have been through traumatised, the antidote to trauma is love. You know, you got to love people back in the, out of that trauma. You know, you got to. I, I know it was for me. That's what works. I don't want to generalize, but that's what it works. I got love back to well, to, to health. You know what I Absolutely. mean? Absolutely. Like, I didn't well, get if bashed. not, you have walls up and you're guarded, and and it's just like that abused dog that all of a sudden now snapping at everyone and is aggressive because it's mm. it's constantly in fear. You're constantly in fight or flight, and and if you built this monologue inside yourself that everyone's out to get you, and you're you're constantly on the defensive then you're going to act a certain way. But if, if you open up to love and someone cares for you and you're getting these positive messages and positive regard, not only now are you doing things for yourself, but you're doing things for other people because you you like the way it's making you feel that you're, you're pleasing others to that extent, you know, in, in a positive sure. manner. So I say, you know, when I get a compliment, I say, thank you for investing in my healing. You're so interesting, brother, and, and just what you're doing and what you've achieved with your life. And you know what I mean? I, it's I amazing. It, man. I would definitely be happy to do more stuff with you. I sent you a copy of my book. So I have a book out called The Ride of My Life. It's published here in the United States, but it's um, available from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And it really, you know, it shares my story on growing up and then getting into motorcycle clubs. And then it also shares with, you know, me getting involved with my education and what I do for work now. And, and then, um, you know, potentially or eventually leaving the club and building this, what we call the lift train ride movement, which is, it's a lot of just ex-club guys that wanted to still have that camaraderie and, and brotherhood. So, you know, it's the positive stuff. We work out or do jujitsu together and ride motorcycles together and kind of peel away some of the stuff we didn't like. Um, but, you know, it's not as as organized as club stuff. But anyways, it, it keeps me really active. And if your readers are For interested sure. to check out my book, that'd be awesome. How do people follow you? What, what's your handle on on um, Insta and, and TikTok? Yeah. Are you on TikTok as well? No, I'm just on Instagram is my main one. Um, it's OG underscore underscore Mooch. Um, and honestly, I, I really pride myself in the fact that I try and reply to everyone that messages me. So, you yeah. know, with, I mean, obviously got to set some some boundaries, but, you know, yeah. got, you know, it's, it needs some simple help or some advice. Hit me up. I'm always happy to help. I have a lot of people that hit me up that ask about, you know, is club life right for me or here's a situation I'm in. Um, and I'm always happy to shoot advice that way, too. So, you know, definitely look me up on social media. Give me a follow um, and hit me up anytime. Give him a give church a follow. I encourage you people, and especially young fellows or young women or anything like that. Are, 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 you know what I mean? Are, are struggling with identity and that sort of thing. Oh, he's your man. He, this guy's got lived experience. I'll vouch for him all day long. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, and I also have a YouTube channel called Mondays with Mooch. I haven't been super active on it, but um, it's just me sharing my story. Sometimes I interview people that have done things with me, or you know, I was in a band growing up, so I've had like my the singer to my old band. Um, I've been on there. Some of the guys from my old skinhead days. Um, so, you know, I'm not super active on it, but I have some decent followers on there. So, you know, get on there and check that out too. Give him a follow, everyone. Get right behind Justin Ch uh, Mooch Delorento. I love that. You, you know, that sounds like a fucking movie star. That's a top name. <laughs> I appreciate it. I like it. Hopefully one day, right? Thank you, Mooch, for being on the Stick Up podcast. Uh, man, I love this. Uh, and I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll message you on Insta and let's just keep in good. I really want to uh, stay in contact with you, brother. You're Absolutely. a fucking dead really, asset really to this world. I really appreciate having me on and I really look forward to staying in touch and see what we can do together. <laughs> Mate, you're an asset. This bloke is an asset. This guy is someone that all parents should be following. Have a cracker of a day as I sign off. Thanks, everybody.